Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Healthcare costs in the United States represent about 18% of the gross domestic product. For every dollar spent in healthcare, an estimated 25 to 30 cents is spent on waste in tests, procedures, or interventions with little evidence to support their value. Overuse of medical interventions is not only a cost problem, but also poses important safety threats to our patients. In today's episode of the podcast, we will explore the choosing wisely for critical care. These are evidence-based best practices to avoid waste and promote value in the practice of critical care medicine. We are fortunate to have with us today three of the authors of the recently published Choosing Wisely Guidelines for the Critical Care Medicine, Choosing Wisely for Critical Care, the next five. Our guests are Jerry Simmerman, a critical care physician from the Department of Pediatrics, Seattle Children's Hospital, Harborview Medical Center, University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. Pamela Smithberger, a doctor in clinical pharmacy from the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy in Pittsburgh, and Anita Reddy, a critical care physician the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, Department of Internal Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland. Jerry, Pam, and Anita, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to discuss this important topic with us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. I would like to start with a brief history of choosing the Choosing Wisely campaign, and Anita, maybe you could take us through that. I would be happy to. So Choosing Wisely started back in 2010 when Howard Brody wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine where he challenged the medical specialty societies in the United States to identify five tests or treatments that are overused and don't provide any meaningful benefit to patient care. The American Board of Internal Medicine pivoted off of that and set up the Choosing Wisely campaign to promote these conversations between clinicians and their patients and encourage them to choose care that is supported by the literature and the evidence and was not duplicative, care that wasn't harming them, and pick tests and procedures that are truly necessary. Then the campaign suggested that societies, both nationally and internationally, identify certain tests or procedures where the necessity would be questioned and discussed. And as a result of this effort, they've been able to involve over 80 national societies who have provided over 550 recommendations on tests and procedures that are potentially unnecessary. And there's been a lot of effort uh, with ABIM and the Choosing Wisely campaign to create webinars, newsletters, and even patient-facing materials. It's a very successful, broad campaign. Excellent. And today we're talking about the next five, which is really the second come around of these uh, recommendations for critical care. But before we dive into the next five, Pam, could you just give us a little bit of insight into the origin, original choosing wisely in critical care and where they are? Absolutely. So the original top five for critical care was developed through participation of all organizations within the Critical Care Societies Collaborative in 2014. The Critical Care Societies Collaborative, just as a little bit of background, is a consortium that represents the four professional societies most involved with providing care to the critically ill, and they include the American Associations of Critical Care Nurses, American College of Chest Physicians, American Thoracic Society, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And, these, and this collaborative represents about 150,000 members and has a broad stakeholder range. So the original list was developed by a task force composed of representatives from each of those organizations. These recommendations were focused on tests or therapies that were largely under clinicians' control and evaluated based on predefined criteria, such as the strength of evidence, prevalence, aggregate cost, relevance, and innovation. Um, in short, the task force reviewed the literature and identified 58 candidate items and used Delphi methodology to reach a consensus and choose the final five that was believed to be most appropriate of that list. 
That list was then submitted to each society's executive committee who sought out external feedback. The feedback was received and a final consensus was reached. And then finally, in 20, February of 2013, each society endorsed that original list and it was published in January of 2014. The, the original five initial choosing wisely for critical care were, number one, don't order diagnostic tests at regular intervals, such as every day, but rather in response to specific clinical questions. The second was don't transfuse red blood cells in hemodynamically stable, non-bleeding ICU patients with a hemoglobin concentration greater than seven. The third was do not use parenteral nutrition in adequately nourished critically ill patients within the first seven days of an ICU stay. The fourth was don't deeply sedate mechanically ventilated patients without a specific indication and without daily attempts to lighten sedation. And finally, the fifth was don't continue life support for patients at high risk for death or severely impaired functional recovery without offering patients and their families the alternative of care focused entirely on comfort. The fact that this list was a collaborative effort from four professional societies really supports the credibility of this list and the effort. That really is a, a high-level summary of the first initial choosing wisely for critical care list. believe that we all agree that these five are still very relevant and, and important but as the years has gone by obviously the idea is to kind of revisit reevaluate and make sure that we continue to push forward with identifying um, best practices that would eliminate uh, waste and improve patient care so jerry if you could maybe walk us through the methodology of how we landed on these next five what was the process that was followed for choosing the next five Absolutely. So I became interested in this whole subject uh, when I was researching for my presidential address uh, in uh, 2018. My focus of that talk was practicing less is more to improve value uh, in the critical care that we deliver. And value in its simplest terms is the ratio of quality divided by cost, and certainly uh, the choosing wisely principles uh, really address uh, this idea of waste and decreasing uh, the cost of care that we delivered. Anyway, the uh, SCCM Council appointed a task force that contained 17 uh, members, uh, as well as two council liaisons. And I would say from the start, this was uh, deliberately a uh, diverse uh, group in terms of uh, the members themselves and the institutions which they uh, represented. At the onset of this process, uh, uh, each of the members in this uh, task force or committee was charged with uh, identifying uh, their own personal examples uh, based on their experience, based on their expertise of waste uh, in their practice, uh, and to find supporting references uh, for uh, the benefit of eliminating uh, that uh, waste. Each uh, uh, council each, uh, of the members of the task force was also uh, asked uh, to review an existing uh, practice guideline that uh, was relevant uh, to the choosing wisely uh, principles. In choosing these uh, potentially new choosing wisely elements, uh, people were asked to consider uh, within this potential recommendation how it affected patient safety as well as the quality of care uh, what exactly was the strength of evidence to support uh, a potential new recommendation? And did it have, uh, was there any evidence of improvement in patient outcomes? So initially, everyone uh, did their literature reviews and individually generated uh, practice uh, uh, statements uh, for the next five choosing wisely. There was a discussion, consensus building, and uh, ultimately we uh, ended up with 13 new items. 
with uh, additional meetings, uh, this list was uh, narrowed uh, from 13 down to uh, eight. Uh, again, uh, in large part based on the strength of the evidence and the potential impact that the item might have on patient care. Next, uh, a survey was uh, developed and uh, this survey was sent out to the entire SCCM membership and SCCM uh, members were asked to rank these eight uh, items uh, from uh, most to least uh, important. And ultimately uh, this uh, was used to reduce the eight recommendations down to five based on how important the uh, SCCM uh, members uh, thought each item was. These uh, five were uh, reviewed uh, by the task force uh, members uh, and then the uh, SCCM executive committee and council uh, also reviewed uh, these new items. Uh, following that, uh, there was a significant uh, activity around simplifying uh, the language uh, that was utilized to explain each of the new items and ultimately uh, the next five choosing wisely for uh, uh, critical care was reviewed and approved by the American Board of Internal Medicine. Excellent and I would like to ask uh, Pam uh, as chair of the, the committee a couple of questions re regarding the, the evolution of these recommendations like Jerry shared it started with 13, whittled down to eight, then to five. And specifically, you, you mentioned, Pam, at the uh, in the original Choosing Wisely, the importance of multi-society uh, approach, but also a very uh, salient aspect of this process that Jerry shared was consulting really a large number of SCCM members. So ultimately, this is about containing cost from the perspective of the clinicians and the practitioners and not from some entity that is regulating that. If you could comment on that aspect first. Absolutely, and that's such a wonderful question and point to make. One of the, I think, strengths and dare I say beauty of SCCM is the vast number of stakeholders and professions that are represented and all equally looked at uh, with membership in different committees and task force. And when we were initially creating the task force to work on the next five, we deliberately chose individuals with roles that represented a wide breadth of critical care um, professions that were you know, important in engaging and caring for our critically ill patients, but also from a variety of practice settings. We wanted to ensure that we include included physicians from the community setting as well as academic medical centers and our pharmacists, our nurses, our advanced practice providers, our respiratory therapists, physical therapists, um, and individuals from different specialties such as emergency medicine, anesthesia, surgery, to make sure that our recommendations really did cover the breadth of our organization. Um, and while SCCM led this initiative, I think the, the, that the fact that we specifically had a broad inclusion in stakeholders and that each of the individuals on the task force then also went back to their respective sections to gain further insight really helped to make the next five very applicable to, you know, critical care as a whole. Excellent. The second question I have for you it regards the the verbiage, and I know Jerry talked about simplifying language, but something that I presume is very deliberate, and I think it's worth sharing with the audience, is the use of do not for every single one of the best practices. Right, and that was very deliberate, and the, the big thing is it, choosing wisely, so things that we want to choose things we should do, and these are things we should not. So when we, you know, when we go through the next five lists, you'll see that they, they were specifically phrased as easily remembered, easily shared items that clinicians could put into practice of things not to do. Um, so we're choosing to do things wisely and specifically choosing not to do the, these things. And 
as we'll discuss when you look at the flow of the five recommendations, they really are phrased simply and to the point with not a lot of fluff, so to speak, in the recommendations to make them very targeted. Excellent. I would like to move on. And Anita, maybe the next step would be for you to give us an overview of the five next five uh, final selection. So just share with us uh, what are the five recommendations, and then we can dive deeper into each one of them. Yes. So the five recommendations that we have for the Choosing Wisely Next Five for critical care are, uh, number one, do not retain catheters and drains in place without a clear indication. Recommendation number two, do not delay liberation from mechanical ventilation. Recommendation number three, do not continue antibiotic therapy without evidence of need. Recommendation number four, do not delay mobilizing ICU patients. And finally, recommendation number five, do not provide care that is discordant with the patient's goals and values. Excellent. So I believe that what I would like to do now is maybe uh, dive deeper into each one of these and have uh, one of you uh, explain a little bit more for, for each one of these recommendations what's a little bit of the rationale, the evidence, and some maybe practice tips that would be useful uh, as we evaluate each one of these five best practices individually. So I would like to start with recommendation one, do not retain catheters and drains in place without a clear indication. Jerry, could you give us your insights on this one? Sure. This uh, recommendation, uh, interestingly, uh, reflects uh, a similar choosing wisely recommendation made by the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America or the SHEA organization. Uh, and their choosing wisely uh, recommendation uh, reads avoid invasive devices such as uh, central venous catheters, endotracheal tubes, and urinary catheters. Uh, but if they are required, use them no longer than necessary because they pose a ma major risk to uh, infection. I think all of us uh, in the uh, critical care environment are, are aware of the risks of uh, any uh, invasive uh, devices. Uh, and uh, as examples, uh, uh, cent uh, central line associated bloodstream infections and uh, uh, urinary catheter-related uh, infections have uh, bundles uh, associated with their use uh, that are very important in reducing hospital-acquired uh, uh, or associated infections with these devices. But uh, one of the most important uh, for both of these examples is if you don't need the device, uh, get rid of it because you can't be charged with a hospital-acquired infection. Uh, if the uh, device uh, is not uh, present. Surgeons are well aware of the uh, uh, post-surgery drains that they insert, uh, that they should uh, come out uh, of the patient uh, as, as soon as possible as they pose a, uh, uh, a type of uh, 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 immunosuppression, if you wish, uh, bypassing some epithelial uh, barrier uh, uh, as long as they uh, remain uh, in uh, place. So reduction of hospital-acquired infection is the motor major uh, driving force for this first uh, next five choosing wisely for critical element. And an important aspect that you did mention is really expanding this beyond central lines and Foley catheters, which are the usual target. Of, of efforts in ICU. So really thinking of every foreign body and uh, making a deliberate practice of evaluating, do I need this today? Can it come out? Correct. Excellent. The second recommendation, do not delay liberation from mechanical ventilation. Anita, could you give us your thoughts on this one? Sure. Uh, so in terms of uh, liberation from mechanical ventilation, there has been extensive literature showing that liberation is very important to reducing ICU length of stay and 
This is achieved by reducing sedation burden as well as delirium and improving mobility. Uh, as part of uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine's ICU Liberation A-F bundle, daily spontaneous awakening trials as well as daily spontaneous breathing trials are very important to ventilator liberation as long as there are no contraindications. And in fact, in some patients, liberation attempts can occur multiple times a day to help facilitate uh, liberation from ventilation. Additionally, I'll just mention that a multidisciplinary approach is highly recommended when developing processes related to SATs, SBTs, and ventilator liberation locally in each unit. And an important aspect of this and some of the other recommendations that we'll see later is that they really fall within uh, the aim and the goals of our uh, A to F bundles that a lot of ICUs are working on and also the SCCM, which is ICU liberation campaign, have promoted and pushed forward. For this, the third recommendation says, do not continue antibiotic therapy without evidence of need. Pam, could you give us your thoughts uh, on this um, aspect? Absolutely. And as a pharmacist, this recommendation um, is very near and dear to my heart. Not that the others aren't, of course, but uh, for this, we, we know there's a growing body of evidence that demonstrates that hospital-based programs that are dedicated to improving antibiotic use, which we commonly refer to as antibiotic stewardship programs, can both optimize the treatment of infections and reduce adverse events associated with antibiotic use. We know these programs help clinicians improve quality of care and patient safety through increased infection cure rates and reduced rate of treatment failures, and also increasing the frequency of correct prescribing for therapy and prophylaxis. These antibiotic stewardship programs also reduce rates of antibiotic resistance and have benefits while saving hospitals money. So there's multiple aspects um, of this recommendation. And we also recognize that the, there is an urgent need to improve antibiotic use in hospitals and the benefits of antibiotic stewardship in programs. And that in 2014, the CDC recommended that all two care hospitals implement antibiotic stewardship programs. So really this recommendation is a part of that and illustrates the intent and need to limit the duration to the shortest effective course of antibiotics and minimize exposure to help reduce exposure and are primary principles of this antibiotic stewardship. And these measures really maintain efficacy, reduce related adverse events and costs as a whole. Absolutely. And I think that one of the problems that we have in the ICU is that we're, we're very facile to starting broad spectrum antibiotics we're not as good as stopping them, right? And uh, it, it does seem that uh, obviously the participation of our pharmacy colleagues uh, in the ICU has uh, been really a game changer, not only in this aspect, but in so many aspects uh, in, in the ICU. But there's also a growing, uh, uh, growing uh, innovation such as the use of procalcitonin, uh, MRSA, PCRs, that have also added to our ability to really be more rational about the use of antibiotics. Any comments on that, Pam? And that's such a great point. I mean, I think as data is mounting for you know different strategies, such as you mentioned, it just makes being good good stewards of antibiotics hopefully easier across the board. Um, but it, and it's always difficult just to keep in mind though with everything that's going on, you know, the different varied pieces of care for our ICU patients. And I know sometimes it's difficult to think about narrowing to say even just unison or um, you know, ampicillin as a whole based on sensitivities, you know, because the patient quote unquote is in the ICU and oh they oh goodness, they're so sick. Um, so I think relying on these technologies and the evidence that's emerging to help us guide therapy and minimize and discontinue antibiotics is really crucial as we move forward. Right. Recommendation four, do not delay mobilizing ICU patients, at least in my practice, has been probably one of the things that is most different than when I was in training. Uh, I can't uh, imagine that we would ever think of moving or walking somebody on a ventilator when I was a fellow, 
But clearly, uh, as we move forward, this is something that more and more people are pushing for. Jerry, could you give us um, your, your, your thoughts and considerations on recommendation number four? Yes. This recommendation is uh, also in line with a, a very similar recommendation uh, within uh, ICU uh, liberation. So it's nice uh, to see that uh, connection. I think a lot of critical care providers may not realize that even uh, without corticosteroids, even without neuromuscular blocking uh, agents, just uh, being immobilized is a major risk factor uh, for uh, catabolism of uh, lean uh, body muscle. Uh, and this is through activation of the stress response uh, and activation of a family of genes called atrogenes, uh, which uh, basically uh, code for uh, proteases that release uh, uh, amino acids from uh, lean body muscle for synthesis of acute phase reactions, expanding the immune system, uh, and uh, of course also gluconeogenesis. So uh, mobilizing the patient uh, will uh, modulate uh, that uh, uh, stress response uh, uh, in uh, a positive uh, way. Mobilization uh, does not mean that every patient is necessarily going to be doing laps around the intensive care unit, but anything instead of letting the patient lie still in bed. So it may be a passive range of motion, active range of motion, getting the patient to a sitting position in the bed, allowing the patient to stand next to the bed, uh, uh, gradually allowing the patient to walk to a, a cardiac chair, for example, or use a commode, uh, and then uh, uh, even uh, potentially walking uh, around the intensive care unit uh, uh, with the help uh, from uh, the team. This uh, act of participating in any kind of mobilization uh, is beneficial. Uh, I would say uh, the evidence is not perfect, but it is growing exponentially that patients just feel better about themselves. They are more confident. And ultimately, uh, this seems maybe counterintuitive, but they require less sedation uh, in the studies that have examined this. They are on the mechanical ventilator fewer days, uh, perhaps uh, because there is a less uh, total body catabolism, including the diaphragm. So they require fewer days in the intensive care unit. Uh, as I said, less sedation. The secondary effect of this is a lower risk of uh, uh, delirium. So for all of these reasons, uh, as soon as it is, soon as it is safe uh, to do so, the uh, patient should be uh, initiated uh, on a uh, mobilization uh, program and advanced. Uh, with uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and input from other members of the uh, ICU team. And one of the, the very interesting developments over the last several years has been the recognition of what our patients go through once they survive critical illness, so the post-ICU care, um, care syndrome. And clearly, uh, items like this recommendation number four on mobilization are super important upstream in terms of determining outcomes, what uh, long-term outcomes for our patients. So I think it's something that we can't emphasize enough. Recommendation number five, do not provide care that is discordant with the patient's goal and values. This perhaps is the one that hits uh, right in the bullseyes of waste. Uh, there's a multiple studies that have shown that the amount of money that is spent at the end of life and the amount of money that is spent on care that's discordant with what patients really want is really mind-blowing. So Anita, could you give us some thoughts uh, on recommendation number five? Definitely. So we feel that there's a, a need to elicit and document care wishes so that 
care, especially in the intensive care unit when a patient's critically ill, aligns with that patient's goals and values. Uh, certainly, uh, early discussions, even in the outpatient setting, especially for patients who have multiple health problems or um, advanced illnesses such as malignant or metastatic cancer, um, ensure that concordant care is provided. And you can imagine in the ICU when surrogate decision makers are under a lot of stress, not only because their family member or friend is going through a lot uh, in the ICU, but they have this pressure to make decisions. But if goals and values are discussed and documented ahead of time, that can assist these surrogate decision makers in, in making uh, appropriate um, decisions for uh, a patient's uh, care. The other item is to just make sure that throughout the hospital stay, that engaging families and patients in the care plan and having them participate in decision-making helps ensure that the care plan is aligned uh, with the patient's goals and values. Jerry, I would like to, to ask you in your capacity as a intensivist of little patients uh, to comment on, these seem to be universal regardless of it, whether it's a pediatric or an adult ICU, regardless of the type of ICU, but are there any particular aspects of recommendation five that are nuanced or unique to pediatrics? Thanks for asking that, uh, because uh, I, I agree with you. I think the principles are uh, universal and uh, in line with this idea of a family uh, care conference uh, to establish the goals and values of uh, the patient. Um, it's just as important for children who are uh, critically ill, perhaps uh, near the end of their life, uh, as it is as it is for adults. So, establishing uh, uh, what the realistic uh, goals for this patient might be with the family um, uh, is is a crucial uh, discussion, and you know sometimes this uh, even leads to. Uh, uh, interventions like discontinuing care uh, at the patient's home uh, and uh, mobilizing a, a team to be able to make this uh, happen. Patients and families are always worried about uh, pain and uh, certainly uh, that is uh, easy to address in the ICU uh, in most uh, cases and Patients and families can be assured that everybody is uh, focused uh, on that. Uh, in addition, uh, it is possible uh, that the care providers uh, might uh, learn about goals uh, that they would never have thought of had this conference uh, not uh, occurred. And uh, uh, I think the multidisciplinary care team is very uh, agile at making uh, some of these requests uh, happen. For example, a common one is uh, allowing uh, multiple uh, family members uh, to uh, be uh, in uh, the room of somebody who is very critically uh, ill uh, or uh, injured to uh, provide support. So, uh, yes, uh, this uh, element of next five choosing wisely for critical care is, is critically important for kids as it is for adults. And I think an important aspect also, uh, as we will summarize these five recommendations, is that eliminating waste is also about creating value. And these are uh, high value uh, items for our, for our patients, like these discussions and what all these um, uh, best practices really entail uh, what's happening at the bedside. So to remind our audience, the five recommendations are, number one, do not retain catheters and drains in place without a clear indication. Number two, do not delay liberation from mechanical ventilation. Number three, do not continue antibiotic therapy without evidence of need. Number four, do not delay mobilizing ICU patients. And number five, do not provide care that is discordant with the patient's goals and values. I would like to get uh, thoughts from each one of you on what is next for the next five. 
what do we make how do we make these stick and become real at the bedside for our patients and i'll start with pam i think really when we think about implementing these and um anita definitely can speak to this and the great work that her keg's doing we need to think about what works in our individual unit and not one size fits all um, I've primarily worked in the same MICU since I've completed training, but I know a lot of my colleagues and friends across the country, their unit works very differently. So thinking realistically of how to implement these, how to think of them on a daily basis for each and every patient really is unit specific and needs to be done at the local level. So taking education and things that societies and organizations are developing and then drilling down to what would work and what would be successful. How would things best be accepted and implemented, you know, with the workflow that goes on for each individual unit. So I, I really think that thinking through that first, uh, prior to initiating the, the, the next five choosing um, list, or even thinking of what would work first what could be the first win when implementing them instead of going for all five maybe pick a few that are either would be the biggest benefit for your unit and your patients or that would be the easiest to implement to really get the ball rolling and i think that it speaks to to that team building effect of really applying these in a way that makes sense to your icu to your team to the expertise that you have there and to your needs so i think that's a great Great advice. Anita, before you tell us your thoughts on what's next, could you tell our audience what a keg is? Sure, absolutely. So we are very fortunate uh, within the Society of Critical Care Medicine to have a number of different knowledge education groups. Uh, these groups help pull together individuals who have interest in a certain topic, uh, such as choosing wisely. Uh, our choosing wisely keg has been meeting for, I think about two years now, actually, this might be our anniversary in July, um, to bring people who have similar interests together, talk about topics in choosing wisely, know what the recommendations are in critical care, and share best practices across our institutions. So it's been a very eye-opening experience, I think a very collaborative experience, and we hope to use this keg um, as a sounding board as, as well as a stepping stone for further work in terms of increasing awareness as uh, in addition to possibly research as well, which uh, we'll talk about in a minute is also. Excellent. And tell us a little bit of your thoughts of how to make these real at the bedside. Well, so I completely echo what Pam just mentioned in terms of you do have to implement locally um, based on how things are set up in each unit. You can't expect that every ICU works the same way. Uh, what we've found success in at the Cleveland Clinic is to share the why why are we doing this? How does this help my patient? How does it help my patient's outcomes? And we also ensure that there's a multidisciplinary or multi-professional approach to implementation. As you heard us talk through these uh, next five recommendations, um, you see that these items touch multiple members of the team. And so we need to make sure we, we continue to take that team approach. Uh, the other thing that we've been successful with at the clinic is to utilize tools in the electronic medical record to increase awareness. Uh, for example, we have a tool within our EMR to show us how long a central line has been in place or a urinary catheter has been in place, as well as a reminder as to how long uh, antibiotics have been prescribed. Uh, so these are all tools that we use within the EMR to make sure that we're choosing wisely. Excellent. Jerry, you obviously have uh, not only experience in leadership at uh, the, the site level in your ICU, but also as a past president of SCCM, have thought about this in a broader context. What are your thoughts in terms of making these real and taking the, the ideas to the bedside? Well, first of all, uh, 
I cannot uh, speak for the uh, council uh, myself, but I would hope that, uh, and this is already in, in process, uh, as I understand it, that there will be a marketing uh, campaign for the next five choosing wisely for critical uh, care uh, uh, and to uh, encourage uh, people, uh, I, I guess, number one, not to forget the first five, but to take a serious look uh, at the second five, five, and as Pam and Anita have uh, said, uh, look at ways of uh, implementing uh, these good ideas to improve value, reduce waste that work uh, at their institution. I think there's always the uh, potential for an annual award uh, for uh, institutions that uh, initiate uh, things like choosing wisely. Uh, as quality improvement uh, projects uh, uh, and uh, the success uh, stories uh, around that uh, effort. One of the things that uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine does very, very well uh, are these uh, collaboratives uh, where hospitals will uh, come together, for example, uh, to learn about uh, something uh, in an interactive way with uh, experts uh, providing uh, 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 lectures on various topics related to the overall uh, program under consideration uh, and, and basically ways of doing successful quality improvement. And this certainly, uh, the Choosing Wisely uh, initiative certainly would fit uh, in uh, this uh, sort of uh, realm. So uh, it is uh, possible, but that could uh, also uh, happen. I think uh, this is a good opportunity, perhaps, for the uh, Choosing Wisely keg to get more uh, involved or continue to be involved uh, uh, in uh, Choosing Wisely, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, designing uh, a survey in terms of how are these new recommendations uh, being uh, implemented, you know, what are the uh, success stories, what are the challenges or barriers and uh, potential ways to overcome them uh, so that uh, these uh, new Choosing Wisely elements can gain wider recognition and hopefully uh, implementation uh, across uh, uh, intensive care units in the United States and uh, uh, internationally as well. Excellent. I, and really a lot of uh, very insightful uh, thoughts for, from from all of you uh, with the experience that you've had with the, with creating this document and going through this process. Really, we're fortunate uh, to to hear it from you, and hoping that we can continue to promote these and push forward. We'll have plenty of links uh, on the show notes of the podcast. We usually close the podcast with some questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. So, uh, if that's okay with you, we could go to that portion. Sure. And I'll start with, with I'll, I'll start with Anita. What would you want every intensivist to know who's listening to us today? Could be a quote or a fact. So actually, I'm not going to change the topic. Um, I am a a strong proponent of of choosing wisely, and I'll I'll go back to to Jerry's comments earlier about less is more, and I can share with you a little bit about the historical context of, of this phrase. So this uh, phrase of less is more uh, is actually associated with a designer and architect, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, and I apologize if I've mispronounced his name, but he is one of the founders of modern architecture. And he advocated for a minimalist approach to modernist design. And I think, one of the things he was trying to convey is the value of simplicity. And I think we can translate this to medicine, as, as Jerry has mentioned in when he was president of the society, that this value of simplicity, the value is not created by, by doing more, which sometimes in medicine we feel compelled to do. Uh, let's do everything we can. Um, but that doesn't always mean more tests, uh, more labs, more interventions. I think what we need to focus on is value. Um, 
is what we're doing actually going to provide a value for the patient? Is it going to change the patient's outcome? And so um, more is not more, uh, actually less is more. So that's something I want to make sure intensivists think about and, and uh, practice when they're taking care of critically ill patients. Absolutely. I think this is obviously a very important lesson for us on a daily basis in the ICU and outside. And uh, definitely a, a lot of times less is more and something that we should be thinking of actively. Uh, Pam, is there something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people either don't believe or behave like they don't believe it? That is, that's a really tough question. Um, I think, well, one thing that I, I know personally, sometimes I lose that up, so I, I can't speak, you know, for others, but I know it's something I struggle with that I try to remind myself on a daily basis is that many times we don't know what other people are struggling with or dealing with based on their background or things that are happening to them. So it's really important just to be kind all the time to everyone. And I think this is also very important when we talk about some of the choosing wisely items that we've discussed, whether that's talking with colleagues, talking with family members, we might not know where they're coming from, what happened to them that day. So giving grace and being kind goes a long way. Um, even at the end of a very long and trying day, having that conversation with the family having goals of care discussion and really taking into consideration families' perspective and what they bring with them to the meeting, um, I think is something that I struggle with and is something that I feel very passionate about and try to remember. So I would say a truth in life and, and in medicine is, is to be kind and to not take advantage or not, 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 not to take lightly what other people are bringing into a conversation because we really don't know you know, what just happened to them right before they stepped into it. So that, that would be one thing that, you know, I try every day to live. And I think it's an excellent point. And uh, like most things in life, if it's common in ourselves, it's common in other people, right? So many things that we kind of view from our unique perspective are very common elsewhere. And I think, Pam, what you talk to is like uh, that empathetic concern, right? We always assume that the patient's the family is being difficult or the colleagues behaving in a way that we would we we wouldn't agree, but we never take the time to really ask why could that be? What's going on in their life that I don't know? And perhaps if I knew that or if I was going through that same situation, I would be behaving exactly the same. So that empathetic concern and that kindness, we have to bring that every day for every interaction and sometimes we forget. So I think it's a great point. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Thank you. And great question. And last, I, I would like to, to finish with some books. So Jerry, uh, could you mention some books, uh, a book or books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others? Well, I would be uh, dishonest, but uh, this is a huge uh, conflict of interest. But the book uh, closest to me is a textbook, uh, Pediatric Critical Care, that I have been uh, editor uh, along with uh, Brad Furman, uh, uh, for six editions. So this is like uh, a lifetime work uh, over 30 years. Uh, I think Brad has said on more than one occasion, maybe this is going to be our most important contributions uh, during our life. So it is certainly the book I know the most about uh, and have uh, gifted that often uh, to others. But aside from that, um, I also just want to put on the top of my list uh, anything by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, this is probably the uh, antithesis of a uh, textbook in uh, pediatric critical care medicine, just for a completely beautiful writing uh, and uh, inspiration uh, in a different way than uh, mathematics and science. Uh, uh, I would go uh, with uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I believe I've, writ uh, I've read everything uh, that this uh, author has ever uh, written, never been disappointed, uh, and uh, would highly recommend it uh, to anyone. 
Excellent. And uh, I will link some of those uh, books as well. Is there any book in particular from uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez that, that comes to mind immediately? Oh, the most famous one is 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, the others that are very well known are Love in the Time of Cholera. Uh, you know, we could we could paraphrase that nowadays. Somebody should do a follow-up to this, and, and uh, the title would be Love in the Time of COVID. Uh, uh, and uh, what are the consequences of uh, isolation over a long period of time? General in his labyrinth uh, is another one that's very popular, but they are all uh, very good and have this sort of uh, quality of uh, uh, history of uh, South America, particularly Colombia, where he's from, and also this uh, sort of uh, uh, real, unreal, uh, 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 aspect uh, of, of, of writing what is what actually happened and what is a sort of a fantasy or even mysticism. Um, Isabel Allende uh, takes the same idea and, and takes it even further. But I would say just uh, I, I will sit down and uh, read a paragraph and just say, wow, how why can't I write something like that? Because it is so beautiful. And I yeah, think you'll find that, uh, I think you'll find that regardless of which of the books uh, that he's written that you pick up to read. Absolutely. And, and I'm a big fan uh, of, of him and the magic realism um, kind of group or, or, or authors in South America. But, but also I think it speaks to what Pam was saying, right? Uh, fiction is a great tool to develop our empathy. Because through fiction, we, we see, I mean, different points of view. We see different, different, different views in life. And like they say, I mean, fiction is the only truth. So a great, uh, I think, uh, muscle to exercise when we're not dealing with critical care. So we will link some of these books on the, on the show notes as well. Well, I, I want to thank uh, Jerry, Pam, and Anita, first, for the wonderful work that you've all done, uh, giving your generous time to really push Choosing Wisely forward to get these next five accomplished, published, and to disseminate your knowledge. Also want to really uh, uh, thank you for your generosity with your time today and sharing your expertise and knowledge uh, with, the, with the audience of the podcast and look forward to talking more with you about these and other topics in critical care. Thank you so much, Sergio. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving us an audience on this topic that we feel passionately about. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.